This week, writer, director, editor, filmmaker, and musician Josh Hasty. He's brought along with him Uncle Boogie from Local Boogeyman Productions who helped Josh bring his terrifying new vision, Candy Corn, to life. If you're listening to this at time of release, available in theaters, VOD, and Blu-ray now. Candy Corn is a totally original slasher film with outstanding performances and practical effects making it a real treat for the Halloween season. We at the Boo Crew loved it. Hear how it all came together, the details of the soon-to-be iconic musical score, and the role Rob Zombie played in making it all possible. Oh, someone's at the door. Could be one of those pesky trick-or-treaters. Ain't nothing to it but to do it, baby. It's your Uncle Boogie. This is Josh Hasty, and you're eating some candy corn with the Boo Crew. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. This town has created a witch hunt, and they are coming for the freaks. So... Let's give them what they came for. What the hell is going on? No one wants to be out after dark. Where the hell is he? Joining the Boo Crew in the Speakeasy studio are two incredibly creative talents. He is a writer, director, editor, filmmaker, musician, and entrepreneur who has done it all from making small budget horror films to designing award winning haunted attractions. Founded the creative production agency Relevox. In 2016, he made a highly regarded, close to five hour film documenting the making of Rob Zombie's 31. If you're listening to this at time of release, his new feature length horror vision, Candy Corn, premieres in theaters VOD and Blu ray Tuesday, September 17th. We are honored to welcome Josh. Josh Hasty. Yeah. <laughs> Josh has brought along with him businessman, horror influencer, artist, t-shirt maker, and now movie producer and actor. 2019 has been quite an incredible year for this guy with roles in Rob Zombie's Three from Hell as well as Candy Corn. In April, he was responsible for the maintenance and setup of the Equinox exhibit at Pasadena's Monster Palooza Convention, the most popular attraction in the history of the show. And a few months shortly thereafter was awarded the prestigious title of World's Best Boss 2019. He is the owner of a Hollywood-based apparel store that has the finest quality merchandise, Tiny Totes for Tiny Tots, a place where you can always grab a handful of Condi. It is your Uncle Boogie, a local a boogeyman. Yeah. <laughs> and there's the, the boogeyman theme song that we just got in here. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know what it is. Uncle Boogie, Uncle Boogie, Uncle Boogie, Uncle Boogie. Yeah. You know what it is. Uncle Boogie, Uncle Boogie, Uncle Boogie, Uncle There's Boogie. There's more. Yeah. Uh huh. You know what it is. He be selling shirts with that creepy shit. Yeah. Uh huh. Horror Who that honey in the front? That's Mossy Pond. Limited run, monster fun. I want everything. Uncle Boogie, Uncle Boogie, Uncle Boogie, Uncle Boogie. I like him ripped and fucked up with them blood stains. Uncle Boogie, Uncle Boogie, Uncle Boogie, Uncle Boogie. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> 
Jesus Christ. That's Weird Al Yankovic's new album right there. <laughs> oh, thank you guys that's for coming. Good. That's good. That, that goes down in history as uh, one of the most epic introductions I think I we've think ever so. done. Okay. I'm going to so. take a deep breath. Yeah, take a deep breath after that. Uh, that was a lot. That was a lot. Okay. <laughs> so we absolutely loved candy corn and we can't wait to talk all about it. But I want to talk about first your first experience with the horror genre. Really, it started as far back as I can remember. My parents were divorced. And so on the weekends, I would go stay with my dad. He loved horror. So I think the first thing I really remember seeing was as cliche as it is now, John Carpenter's Halloween. But I also remember like when it was bedtime that's when the X-Files theme song came on on nice. TV and that was like my cue to go to bed and I'd be terrified <laughs> to go to bed. You know, like my dad would be like, all right, you hear the music, get to bed. <laughs> Bedrooms all the way down at the end of this hallway and I'm like, you know, that song sent me off to bed. So that was it. Like he just loved horror and made us watch it. We used to have to build a haunted house in the garage uh, during Halloween time. And so like, yeah, it was sort of just like, I guess now that I'm saying it out loud, he forced us. <laughs> so he was, he, he was into it, right? Major. Yeah. Wow. Like major, major, major. Wow. Like my dad turned me on to everything about horror and Halloween that I love. Was like, he in the industry or anything? No, or? not at all. He just, I don't know why, probably just because of his weird childhood. Yeah. I mean, he turned me on to Phantasm and then stuff that... No, no one else my age was into or even still today like it's becoming kind of cool I guess but just like the really you know, stuff you could only see at drive-ins back in the day that's the stuff he loved that's really how it started was going over there and being forced to watch it and I mean as soon as stores would put out anything Halloween like costumes and stuff like he'd pick us up from school and we'd go look at everything and pick something out and it just that was my, my introduction I guess what were some of the movies you discovered on your own later that were just like these are the ones I love. These are my favorites. I love the stuff that he turned me on to. I think later on, I really started getting into certain Italian horror. Like, I love The Living Dead Girl, Coffin Joe, you know, Jose Marin's, like, stuff like that that's just so weird and there there's just Italian horror doesn't care, you know, like, they'll, it's... Yeah, it's it's jowls, man. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's just bloody yep. horror porn but it's done in such an artistic real way and that I was always attracted to that of how like in the wrong hands something like living dead girl it would be awful but it's so artistic that it's 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 disturbing to watch right and then I later was introduced to Rosemary's Baby which is now the nucleus of my love for horror hey that explains Madison Russ's character's name yeah right Carol Saperstein yeah yeah <laughs> Saperstein. I was like where did I hear this name yeah. oh yeah Rosemary's well, Baby it's funny you picked up on that one because Sheriff Bramford Bramford is the name of the apartment that got oh, that's right. nice one that's right wow. nice one that was yeah. by me too wow I didn't yeah, that. every name, every location name, everything about Candy Corn is 100% homages and little subtle nods to all the stuff that I love in cinema and horror. Boogie, did we ever ask you your first horror movie you ever saw? I don't even remember if we did. I think it was The Birds, because growing up with my grandma, I used to watch all those Alfred Hitchcocks with her. It really was like early 80s horror that got me into it, but it was stuff like The Birds, the first stuff I watched. When did you start getting into wanting to make movies, Josh? I actually was just 
just uh, thinking, trying to figure this out. Someone asked me that. And when I would watch, like, I specifically remember Friday the 13th. I forget which one it was. Maybe you guys know, but it was one of the 45 of them where <laughs> there is a right. couple on a motorcycle or a dirt bike and Jason shoves a machete through them both. I don't know if I that's that ringing any bells. Three, but I think so. But either way, my little brother would always rent that one. You know how like you go to Blockbuster and there was a million options, but you always still just rented the one or two <laughs> things that you were right. like. Well, that's yeah. like, like watching The Office on Netflix every time. <laughs> <laughs> and so he would always get this one and it would scare us so bad. So it became an interest for me, even as like a 10, 11 year old of like a coping mechanism. Like, how did they do that? So I remember my first memory of trying to figure it out was like, even before cameras was just figuring out how production works. So I convinced my grandma to go let us go get red slushies. I was showing my brother how like if you put it in your bottom lip and then you lean forward, that's how the blood comes out. And like basically a way to sleep at night, you know, like to realize like <laughs> it's not real. This is how they did it. It's just red slushy. That's all it is. And then I started studying makeup effects as I as I got a little bit older, junior high school. And then I took a filmmaking class. I got kicked out of another class in high school. I was so, so bad. I was such a terrible student. And the one class that was available was film studies. And that teacher, Mr. Like, Wayne Like. I don't know why, but he was like, man, you could do this. And like, he was like the first person that encouraged me to do it and really like kind of believed in me to do it. So he would like write me notes to get out of other classes to just, just learn how to edit. Here's a bunch of old footage that other students have shot. Just figure out how to edit and wrap your head around that and, um, and stuff like that. And then, so, you know, that obviously spawned into wanting to create my own stuff. And it's hard for me now to think about where it sort of started because I don't really remember a time when I wasn't either learning about it or trying to create stuff. But I think first time I probably got my hands on a camera was probably in high school. And what were you shooting on film or? Yeah, I learned how to originally how to shoot on Super 8 and actually here in Burbank, 8 millimeter, Pro 8 millimeter is a company that I would buy the cassettes of eight millimeter film. They send it to you. Each one was about 50 bucks and it shoots three minutes of eight millimeter film. I now have a huge collection of eight and 16 millimeter cameras, but I would just pop them in and shoot them and, and you'd send it back to Burbank from Ohio. And then like three or four weeks later, they would send it back on a CD that you would have to pop into your computer and download and this whole thing. <laughs> just to edit wow. it. Yeah. But <laughs> at first it was like, I don't know how many reels of film I got back that were just solid white because it was the wrong ASA oh, daylight shit. or whatever. But I love that now because I, I learned how to how to do it right, how to shoot on film. And now like I hate digital so much. Like I spent so much time making candy corn, not look digital. Yeah. And I told my producer, like everything I do, it's going to be on film or I'm going to find somebody else to take your job. Like that's your goal is make sure we're only shooting on film. That's a whole nother topic. But yeah, I'm really glad that I learned to shoot on film and I love it and I miss it. I think it's super important for filmmakers to know there's a pain that comes with getting all of your footage back and it's all gone. And you have to get all your friends back together and all, you know, and learn and, and really understand what light ratings are and the different film stocks with different color temperatures. And So you guys both, Boogie and Josh, have mutual partnerships with Rob Zombie. Did you guys meet Rob at around the same time? I don't think so. I think uh, Josh was working with him. Him. Before I had started working with him, I had knew a lot of mutual friends or whatever. And Josh was actually, I mean, he was what you were working on 31. Was yeah, it, yeah, I just finished it and I, I wanted to get Rob. We had this inside yeah, joke yeah. and I wanted to make him a shirt that had the inside joke written on it. I loved his stuff. 
that I, you know, I discovered him on Instagram and I was, and I know Rob's like loves seventies and vintage stuff. And that was the only person that I saw doing that. So I just reached out to him and was like, Hey, you know, Rob Zombie. And I want to get him this, I want to make him this as a gift. Would you be able to do it? And uh, just sort of commissioned him to do it. I think in my phone, it still says Josh RZ commission. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> Cause usually I, I put something on everybody's name in my numbers, like their Instagram or something. Right. Wait, I, what's mine? I don't know. Maybe <laughs> Boo Crew number three. <laughs> Boo Crew three. Something That's like good. that. It should be number one or two. That's <laughs> right. Change that to no, number I mean, I one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was cool. And then we just, we made, we made Rob a couple cool shirts for the Hollywood bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was a, a long inside joke during the making of 31. Like Rob and I were two of the only people on the set that didn't go to film school. Oh, wow. And oh, I almost got sent home. So like the whole story with that's insane. That's sort of how Rob and I bonded and became close. And I really wanted to, how do you repay your hero for taking you under his wing? You make him a shirt, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you don't only make him a shirt, you make him a boogeyman yeah, shirt. Right. Well, we didn't even really use my brand. I mean, I, you know, I use a lot of old actual vintage. Yeah, shirts, exactly. So I went out and, you know, found a couple of cool ones that might work for Rob and, what was cool is no. I gave it to him. I gave it to Rob at a show. So, you know, I, I told him like, hey, I've got something for you. And he was coming through town of wherever I was at the time. And so I gave it to him backstage and he's just like, oh, you know, was, that's cool. It's funny or whatever. <laughs> and then me and my fiance were standing on the side of the stage with Sherry watching. And uh, Rob goes back in his little tent and like changes wardrobes throughout the night. He came out during, I think it was the song Lords of Salem. And he was wearing it and he was like, gave me the guns and, and performed. And I was <laughs> just awesome. like, holy <laughs> nice. shit, man. And he never does like share. He's like, take pictures. He's never going to do this again. Yeah. So I'm like taking pictures. They're all fucking blurry as shit because he moves <laughs> like a... It was but, there, I swear. Yeah. We'll talk a little bit more about this and then I want to get on to Kenny Corn. But what was it about Rob and wanting to be taken under his wing? Like, what was it about his work that you were like, I, that's the guy I want to work with? When I was in high school in Ohio, being into filmmaking and horror, it's not cool. It's not accepted. And so before the days of Google and all that stuff and everyone even having a computer in their home, I would go to the public library and I would look up things on filmmaking. I would check out books and they had one computer there. I somehow during one of those days stumbled upon Rob Zombie, who I was aware of, but he wasn't in my, that's not the world that I really was into at the time. I started reading on him and it was like, holy shit, this dude does everything I want to do. Like he had just done his first Universal Studio, uh, the Horror Nights, mm-hmm. yeah. like yep. years and years and years ago. And I think he had maybe just done Devil's Rejects, if I'm not mistaken, something like that. And so I'm reading on him, just like, oh my God. And and it became more of like a, you know, he didn't go to film school. Lots of people hate him and he doesn't give a shit. And it was just like, this is my guy. Everyone around me is telling me to go to school and do this and focus on this. And this guy's like literally saying, no, don't fucking do that. Don't do that. Do whatever you want. And I did. And so I started to realize like, well, all of you guys are fucking miserable (laughs) and you're telling me to get a real job and think about college. And this guy, he seems to be digging his life quite a bit. And uh, I'm going to listen to that guy. So really, I never went to film school. And I always tell people my film school was the making of Devil's Rejects and the making of Halloween, Rob Zombie's Halloween. So I I used to wait tables and every break I would get, I I had this big fucking clunky laptop computer with the making of discs. And like, I would just go watch the making of, and it was the way Rob talked and the way he worked that I could be like, 
he would say something like about the DP working with the gaffer and setting up the next setup and they have 30 more setups to do. So they should, I had no idea what it meant. So I would like literally have a notepad, take notes, and then I would go back to the library and look up what does that mean. It became just like a, he taught me everything I knew without ever actually engaging with me. And so when I found out he was doing 31, by that point, I'd been freelancing for a living, doing video work. I saw that he was crowdfunding it and I was like, oh shit, well, that maybe I can do like a making of documentary, but I never wanted to do just some bullshit behind the scenes featurette. So I wrote this really long thing to him and we had a mutual friend at the time and I was like, please send this to Rob. And it was just like, you know, I've studied you for years as a filmmaker and I feel like, oh, you know, I've learned so much from all your making of documentaries, but I still don't think it really gets inside your head. And I, I just basically was like, you know, you're a fucking rock star. I know that, but you're a filmmaker. I want to make a documentary that, that shows everybody that. Like two weeks later, he was like, hey, come on out. If you fly yourself out and put yourself up, you can do this thing. That was my goal was to, to make something for the guy that taught me everything, but to really to just be able to shadow him in that environment. I'd never been on a movie set before. Candy Corn is the second movie set I've ever been on in my life. 31 is the first. And that was tough too. I mean, the, the studio basically was like, look, you can shoot it, but you're not editing it. That's not how it works. Glenn's going to edit it. He edits all of Rob's stuff. And so I spent the weekends editing and I finally showed Rob like by the end, I was like, Hey, I've been doing this. What do you think? Can I please edit this thing? And he was like, yeah. And then the studio wanted to send me home because I wasn't union and they were worried. So Rob was like, by that point, he was like, all right, well, go fuck yourselves. He's my personal guy now. Nice. And nice. so Rob hired me yes. personally. Yeah, it, it was incredible. It was literally a life-changing experience. And to this day, I mean, I talking to him today about all the crazy shit that's going on. And he's become one of three mentors in my life. And it started just because of that, because of me just saying, hey, you fucking helped me out a lot. Let me come do this, please. Fortunately, he said, Let's do it. That's awesome, man. I love it. Talk to us a bit about the development of Candy Corn. First of all, see what the basic plot is of the film. The basic plot is that there is a mentally challenged kid who lives in a small town called Grove Hill, Ohio. And every year, a group of bullies like to haze him on Halloween because it's fun for them. And this year, things go too far. They end up killing him. Just so happens that there is a traveling carnival in town that weekend where Jacob actually gets a job. And so the guy who runs it, Dr. Death, played by Pancho Moeller, uses some sort of ability that he has to bring Jacob back and seek revenge on the people that killed him. And when did you come up with this story? I mean, the idea of doing a film like this has been something I've always wanted to do from growing up in Ohio and then, you know, being obsessed with like John Carpenter's Halloween and Dark Knight of the Scarecrow and movies like that, that just have that Midwestern vibe that it, it was a way for me to escape and be like, oh, this is what I like within the world that I live in. I can't get that outside of the films or TV. And so I always wanted to do something, but then it was from working on 31, I met my my production designer, Sean McKinney, who was Rob's production designer. He's from Ohio as well. So we really hit it off and, mm. and then meeting Poncho. And it sort of came to a culmination of like, I now know real filmmakers and I've done a bunch of bullshit before then, you know, a lot of failures to sort of learn, like I said earlier, but times like 10 years of it, we all wanted to work on something together. And so it was just sort of like, all right, well, we don't have any money. So what can we do? What can I write that's personal to me? I wanted to do something original. You know, I don't know why Hollywood refuses to do that. I know why they, they refuse to do it, but I don't know why the fans keep letting them get away with it. So I wanted to make something original 
that I loved that was a story that was relatable to me as far as being an outcast and all that sort of stuff, but stacked on the framework of something that was very familiar, you know, and that it's a slasher in the Midwest, but just put an original new spin on it. That was ultimately the foundation. And then I just sort of started creating these characters in this world. And, you know, it's like Tarantino says at a certain point, you're not writing the script, you're just the conduit and it's just coming. And, and that's exactly what it, what it was for Candy Corn. I mean, I knocked the script out in maybe a couple weeks. Was it difficult to find uh, funding to make the movie? Yeah. I mean, we basically didn't find funding until, you know, that's where James came on. It was so incredible because it's low budget indie. It's original. And I'm not kidding. People don't want to do original. We had one producer who liked the script and his pitch to me was, what if we remake Killer Clowns from Outer Space? Because I have the rights. <laughs> he had wow. the rights to it. What? And he's like, what what if we did that? (laughs) And I was like, nope. What about this script that I sent you that I thought we were talking about? And that's that's the mindset. This is very difficult. And being, you know, the, the, the Rob Zombie thing, no one in Hollywood gives a shit about that. It's like, okay, cool. You worked with Rob Zombie. Everybody works with somebody. Right, so what right. What else have you done? So it was very difficult. And the biggest thing for me was I turned down. We found the money several times, but it was at the cost of you need to give us permission to change the script however we want. We want final edit. And so at that time, again, I'm like texting Rob like every other day, like, what are this? And don't fucking give him final edit, man. You'll regret it for the rest of your life. Just keep on looking. That was sort of my, my experience for almost two years. And so we'd have a producer, they would have some money and then we'd have a, you know, a shoot scheduled. We'd get up to the point where it was time to shoot. And then they'd be like, well, we've got enough for three days. Sorry. It's like, okay, so do we just cancel everything or do we go ahead and knock out these three days? And I made the executive decision to knock those three days out. A total of four times we did that, broke it up into four separate productions. And my objective was if I could get the stuff shot and cut, I could use that to propel to the next level to, to show people like, okay, you don't give a shit that I've worked with, you know, on this or done that. You don't know who I am. Let me show you what I want to do. But that didn't work. And then uh, eventually we got to the point where my fiance was just like, like I was getting dicked around so much. And there was one one person that was like, we're going to fund it. We didn't need a lot. There are actors in Candy Corn that should have been paid what our entire budget was. Oh, I, I believe it. Yeah. <laughs> and they do get paid that on other films that they right. do. You know, we had this one, one guy that was ready to go and then I gave him a deadline and he didn't make it. And then my fiance, Lindsay was like, why don't you talk to James? Like he's always talking about wanting to get into movies and do stuff with you. So I called him up and, um, I told him what we needed and I showed him some of the stuff and 48 hours later he had the money in the bank. And it's lucky that I don't know how to edit or else I would have said I wanted to And I would have said thanks. Good luck with your movie career. See school doesn't pay off because I don't know how to edit. So. so we provided some of the money and then also the wardrobe design, right? I did a little bit of wardrobe on it, yeah. What, Bishop Gate? Yeah, I did Bishop Gate. I did all the wardrobes aside yeah. from his, he did Bishop I mean, he, Gate. Yeah, yeah, Josh kind of sent me what he wanted wanted and yeah since i'm uh and a couple of the kids i guess the uh, yeah, steve some of their but it was it was very back. real you know like the wardrobes are just real and i and i, and I wanted his style right yeah we you made know, i mean we jackets. made uh gus's shirt yeah i heart lot lizards yeah. that was the only one actually we made the rest was just kind of like yeah. vintage you know denim yeah. and stuff like that you made a bunch of shirts in three from hell as well yeah yeah i did i did i mean a lot of the we'll see i don't know i haven't seen any clips with them yet we i mean there's it. a few pictures you know <laughs> rich is wearing one where it's uh like disco sucks yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And Bill's in a few and 
kind of shit like that. I think Sherry wears one that says Super Freak. It's all kind of like, you know, well, 70s one throwback. Free the Three, right? Yeah, and the yeah. Free the Three. Yeah, yeah. Free the Three. Yeah, yeah that's that in there too. Stuff. You're in that one yep. too? We saw you in there. Oh, did you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I haven't even seen me in that. <laughs> yeah, we saw you in there. You <laughs> give it a scowling look. The camera goes right by you really? nice yeah. and slow. Yeah. Well, that's cool then. You're in there. <laughs> Hardcore. There you go. Where's my IMDB? <laughs> <laughs> and you're in You're in Candy Corn too. Wolf yeah, Boy. Yeah, for, for a second. Wolf Boy, yeah. That's right. It's going to be a spinoff. Someday yeah. that. that <laughs> he's gonna make that with his return money. I'll, do, I'll, I'll make that myself. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. No, it's it's cool to do little. I mean, I'm not. I'm no actor or anything. So it's cool to just do some background like that or something. Throw myself in there. It's amazing that you guys pulled this movie off. And looking at actors like PJ Souls and Tony Todd, who are horror royalty, how do you convince them to say, "Hey, come on this movie and please stay. Just just do this." Yeah. You know, it was all the script. I mean, they told me that ahead of time. Courtney came on first. Him and uh, he and Poncho had the same manager. Okay. So Courtney came on, fucking loved the script, came on as a producer, raised a bunch of money for us. Like he really loved the movie. And, and Courtney yeah. from, like, I was like, where do I know this guy from? Back to the Future, The Burbs, Burbs. Can't Buy Me Love, like <laughs> right. all these great right, movies. Right. He's obviously, and he's Malachi from Children of the Corn. That's right, right. That's his big one. And... He's in Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I don't know if you if you watch that show or not. I know of it, but yeah. I have not seen oh, it. Oh, yeah. That's pretty good. But yeah, so once Courtney came on, that set the tone for the other guys. And then PJ was not doing anything, really. She was like, I'm, I'm, she's being very picky. And everybody told me that. So when I wrote the script, I would show it to like Justin Mabry, who was one of my only producers at the time. And I'd be like, hey, when you're reading this, think of... PJ Souls, like somebody like that, not thinking it's ever, you know, I'm ever going to get her, but like, think about somebody like that. That's what kickstarted it. He goes, well, you know, Ben Scrivens from Fright Rags, like he's good friends with PJ. I can talk to him. Okay. And so I'd never met Ben and I talked to him and he was like, yeah, she's really like, she's turning everything down. And like, there's a number that everyone in the industry knows that you have to make an offer send her a script with the minimum of this. And that number was not anywhere close to what we oh, ever shit. could have. So I was just like, we'll just talk to her or whatever as a friend and see what she thinks. So it was weeks and he finally convinced her to read it. And the next day we were on the phone and she was like, I love it. I love this character. And she sort of like interviewed me and she's friends with Rob. And so that helped as well. The fact that I had you know, Rob's sort of blessing as yeah. a someone who's not going to embarrass her or take advantage of her or whatever, I guess. And so she came on and then Tony, same thing. It was getting to him was tough. And then I always want to see the feature length script. The same thing. The next day I got a, an email from his manager said, Hey, Tony's going to be calling you at two today. You know, here's the, here's the number he's going to be calling from. And he called and it was just like right to it. He's like, you know, I love the script. I love the character. Here's two things I want to have done and I'll, I'll take this role. And one was he wanted to have something on his left eye, or it was three things, something on his left eye. So Justin Mabry made the eye patch. And then the uh, second thing was he wanted to play it. I had him sort of a badass and Tony wanted to play him more of an idiot savant and sort of slower and reserved. Right. So it wasn't as predictable, which I loved. And then the third thing I can't say, hopefully you'll find out in the future. But those were his three things. And I was just like, Yep, sounds good to me. Yeah. And then he came on as an executive producer too. We really hit it off and talk a lot about the character. And even though his he doesn't have a huge role, it was another thing he really liked. Was like I clearly didn't just want Tony Todd just to use him. I just wanted to work with these guys because they, like you said, they're royalty, they're icons, they're yeah. who I grew up yeah. watching. PJ is in John Carpenter's Halloween. Okay, 
Hall pass for fucking life. Right. Yeah, so. You know, <laughs> Courtney's in Children of the Corn, done. Another one of my top fives. And then Tony Todd is not only the Candyman, the first movie that ever scared the fucking shit yeah. out of me, but he also has been in The X Files. He was in yeah. The Crow, which is another one of my top fives. And it was just like, yeah, I've got to work with this guy. But it was great. I mean, they're all method actors. I'm what Courtney refers to as a method director. I don't call any of the actors by their real names on set. They're actors to this day that I don't know what their names are and I don't give a shit what their names are. <laughs> they're the characters right. that I created and that's who they need to be when they show up. And so fortunately for me, Courtney, Tony and Poncho are, are the same way. They prefer that. When people ask, what was it like working with them? I don't know. Cause I didn't work with Tony Todd. We didn't talk about Candyman or whatever. Every time I saw him on set, he was Bishop Gate. And when I talked to him, he would respond slowly. Like Bishop Gate. He definitely has a presence. Yeah. You know. Yeah, you were in that scene with him too when he has a monologue yeah. there. And he yeah, stays yeah, in yeah, it. Yeah. He stays in he it. He stays in that office. Um, yeah. It was incredible though. They delivered phenomenal performances. Yeah. And it was great for me to be able to work with people like that that could have been arrogant assholes. They absolutely could have been. They were the opposite 100%. Were you pressured at all to knock out their scenes in like a couple days? Or, uh, oh yeah, know, we, we had to because of budgeting. They worked with us, but working with us on that budget <laughs> was still absurd. So we had PJ for a day and we had Tony for two. Wow. That was it. PJ, a lot of her stuff was voiceover because she's on the CB. And so we just did that during lunch, just recorded it all off to the side into a, you know, our, our audio guy just recorded it on a card and gave it to me. And then all of Tony's stuff was shot over two days at the circus. <laughs> I was just thinking about Sky Elabar as Gus yeah. and how <laughs> great he was. He was yeah. So yeah. Good. When you saw him read your script, basically, and yeah. bring those words to life, were you like, oh my God? Because there's a tone that he delivers that it seems like you're watching a movie from the 80s or something. And there's, some, yeah. there's something about his performance that is kind of out, yeah. you know? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, we worked on that a lot. He's described in my script as sleazy, just gross, handlebar mustache, balding with long, thin, like a long, thin skullet. <laughs> Poncho, after he read the script, he was like, dude, I've got... Gus. I, I know the guy. I'm friends with this dude named Sky. He's from the Greasy Strangler. And I wasn't aware of any of, of that. And so he sent me a picture and I was just like, yep, give him my number. Like he, I don't care what he wants to be paid. I'll fucking pay him. Like this is, he's perfect. You know, he was like, no, I'm, I got to read the script first and whatever. And so he read the script and then called me and I mean, Sky is Gus. Like, I'll just let you know now. And he called me and he's like, Josh, man, it's Sky. <laughs> Fucking candy corn, man. <laughs> Fucking candy corn. And that's all he kept saying. And I was just like, do you like it? Do I like it? I fucking love it, man. So talk to me. But like, you know, and he played it like at first he was like, so, you know, should I be kind of like cool and laid back? And I'm like, no, dude, you're a fucking you. sleaze ball. Like those glasses, he wears those every day. What? Those are his glasses. Um, I bought the shoes and James got the pants. And then my dad is a truck driver and he always, he has like a sticker that says like something the about lot, lot lizards. lizards. Yeah. So I had him make the I Heart Lot Lizard shirt. <laughs> The jacket, that's Sky's jacket. He wears it out to dinner and shit. Oh, oh my that's, that's God. That slinky leather yeah. jacket. Yeah. 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 So, but it was incredible. I remember, you know, we didn't, we didn't have any time to rehearse with anybody. So I just like, I didn't give anybody any room to improv. I had the characters exactly how they are on screen in my head. And while they were setting up lights and camera, that's when we rehearsed. That was pretty much it. And then so with Sky, it was like, I would talk to him. You can see it in the behind the scenes documentary that comes with the Blu-ray. They're setting up cameras and, and he's just like, all right, so like on this part, like, you know, and I, I just, I gesture to him and, you know, I really like coach them down to like every little nuance and yeah. cadence. And it was like, all right, 
action, probably like the first six or seven takes, no one could make it through. He did every single time, but everyone was laughing their asses <laughs> off <laughs> because no one, no one was expecting that. Cause at this point we shot him last, one of the last things everybody was, you know, it was candy corn. Like they knew like my serious tone and don't fucking bother me. And like, I'm, I, I, I'm very specific about how I compose the shots and I'm always listening to the music while I'm directing and like, just, and so like, that was the tone. And then this guy comes out and his first thing, they just ran the whole scene, him and Matt who plays Chet. And he's just like, let me put it to you this way, man. You know? And everybody's like, I remember my gaffer. I remember watching him and he was looking around and like everybody was like what the fuck is this and then my gaffer at the very end of the shoot he was like man the first few days i was like this is gonna be fucking hell like this director is not gonna be any fun at all i didn't know what we were making i thought it was just gonna be super heavy and dark and then gus comes over and i was just like this is the fucking greatest movie ever. this has got everything so there are yeah. a lot of asses out there <laughs> yeah he is one of the best characters in there oh sure. he is and poncho too he was insanely yeah. good and yeah. he had like these long like diatribes, right? These yeah. epic speeches that he would give. It was so good. Yeah, we worked on that for almost two years, like wow. regularly. He was the only one that I had the opportunity to rehearse with. So his wife would video him doing different things and I would send back feedback and I would video ways I want him to do things and say things. And when he first did it, you know, because I always let the actor do what you want to do. How do you think it is on, you know, after you read the script? And then I'll go through and comb back, you know, or add or whatever. Because I don't want to just come out of the gates saying, this is how Dr. Death is, Poncho. Because then he might have something in his head and he's going to be like, well, okay, now let me process that and then fuck it up for you real fast. You know, so it's like you read it, you have an idea of what it is. So you do it. And the whole thing at first was very over the top. Everything he did was over the top. So I just kept showing him a lot of clips of James Spader, actually. So I showed him like uh, Lindsay like, pulled out like 30 of my favorite scenes from the blacklist. And I, I just sent them to him. I was like, sit down, watch these. Because at this time he was sending me stuff every day. I was like, don't send me another fucking thing. Watch all of these shots of Raymond Reddington. Then send me how you think it should be. And so like all those facial tics that he does and all that stuff, that's Raymond Reddington. And no one would expect that because it's you know on NBC or whatever, but like it's a great fucking show and James Spader's the fucking king of the he's world. the man, right? tough so turf. He's the best, he's absolutely the best. And so that's when we decided, as I told him, the eccentric Dr. Death lives and dies on stage. When you're backstage, when you're talking to Jacob, when you're you know talking to the police, whatever, right. you're Lester. You're a real human being. I never wanted to acknowledge that he's a little person. Poncho and I are friends and we talk about that a lot, like in the shit he went through and little people are always novelties. That's not what I wanted this movie to be. I think that that comes out in a way that's like, it's weird. You know, it's weird that like he's a real human being that plays this character at the carnival but like this dude is fucking unhinged and yeah. he is like, who knows what he's doing. And I tried to do that with all the characters, leave a lot of subtext and yeah, Poncho, it, it was perfect. And the speeches you're talking about, I did not let him improv anything. It was like, this is the words. And I was expecting that night that we did that. He does the epic speech at the end. Mm -hmm. I was very, when you watch the documentary, you'll, you'll just, you'll get a headache from it in a good way, hopefully, if there's such a thing. But I had all those shots. We didn't have time to rehearse, you know, so he didn't have marks. I literally would have the camera roll and he's doing his thing. And then when the camera got to a position I didn't like, I would yell to Poncho, hold, and he would stop and mid-step, stop talking. Camera would keep moving. 
And then when it got back to where I liked on the dolly, I would say action. And so that all that thing, that sort of Friday night lights, you know, locker room getting pumped up vibe that there <laughs> yeah. is. Wow. That was all just like, I think we did a total of 19 times. And that motherfucker nailed that speech word yeah. for word every Shit, single really did, fucking yeah. time. I mean, I have the footage. I edited <laughs> the whole thing. This fucking dude nailed it. I mean, Poncho is, he is on par, and I don't mean this disrespectfully to Poncho, PJ, or Courtney, but Poncho is on par with all of them yeah. as an actor, easily. Wow. Yeah, he's, he's great, man. Yeah. yeah. And Candy Corn's his first lead. By the way, I love that incantation he was reading from the book. You yeah. like that? Thank yeah, you. Yeah, it was great, man. I wrote that based on, there's actually a, a druid, some sort of druid spell book, and the I took pieces of it and then sort of replaced words that were pertinent to what he's talking about with oh, Jacob. Interesting. So there is some actual sorcery right. within there, right. but it was like things like, you know, um, sleeping in stone and clay and walk once more. That's stuff I came up with to make it make sense. I really loved the music. It was so awesome. It just, it fits so well <laughs> with you. everything going on. I also love that it was like melodic too. Yeah. You know, it wasn't just a score. It was that memorable melody that you get yeah. from like those John Carpenter movies and things yeah. like that. No, thank you. That was, um, it was easy in the sense that like when we would have those lulls in between production, I play piano and guitar and I, I would write those like the main theme when Jacob's riding his bike. I just wrote that. I have a video on my phone right now that I just literally hold it like this and then I would send it to Michael Brooker, my co-composer, and he has a studio in Austin, Texas. And that fucking guy is just a musical prodigy. He would take just me just like doing this one little melody and then I would just tell him like, I want synth. So we picked out like five basic instruments that would be our palette throughout the film. That way it didn't stray and it didn't seem all over the place. And so it was really like dirty synth. I referenced the fog more times than Michael ever wanted to hear anyone reference anything. <laughs> but then I referenced like Phantasm and The Exorcist. But really it was about the feeling, you know, it was about that haunting, those melodies. The issue we had, so first I wrote all those those main themes, I sent them to Michael and he beefed them up and he wrote some of his own stuff as well. After I had my final cut, I went down to Austin and we spent a week just fleshing out the whole thing. The challenge was we originally wanted I wanted one main theme, like, you know, Halloween or like the fog or whatever. But as we started going through, we both were like, man, there's no time when it comes back. The story's always moving forward. There's no real moment where you have the shape reappearing. Right. And so we ended up having like five or six themes. And originally we were like, well, let's choose which one is going to be the theme. And it was probably like six in the morning one night. We didn't sleep that entire week. We just decided sort of halfway through, like, fuck it. Let's just put them all in there. Whatever feels right. Like, let's not do a theme just because Halloween did or just because Phantasm did. Candy Corn may not need that, and that's okay. We cranked it out, and uh, I, I love it. I'm super, super happy with it, and Burning Witches Records is putting it out on vinyl and digital. Oh, oh that's, that's great. so cool. That's awesome. I'm going to ask yeah. that, because I think a lot of people are going to oh, pop out of that movie. Like, people are like, oh, I love the score. Yeah, yeah, I get asked all the time, and um, yeah, I'm super excited. The it, It's a really cool sort of deluxe package that they're putting together. And I like how the movie seems to be in its own time period. doesn't seem to exist in a certain yeah. place. Is that, and it creates a very unsettling mood because right. they got, you know, rotary dial phones, kind of yeah. like what it follows, it follows managed exactly. to accomplish, yeah, right? Yeah. Same kind of thing. Was that an intentional? 100%. Yeah. yeah I never in the script, nowhere, it, it doesn't say what year it is. Yeah. Um, so we speculate it's in the seventies maybe. Yeah. Seventies, you know, eighties. I mean, yeah. the script actually says in a time gone by. 
That's how I worded it because I didn't want, you know, that becomes too like stranger things. It's the eighties. We get it. You know, the seventies, like if you, if you, but I feel like now you're watching something that's sort of telling you to frame your mind a certain way. And honestly, those cars that are in that, in the movie, those are real people's cars that live in the town that we shot. So like they still live like that's where it is. And I knew that all those prop cars, those old muscle cars and everything, those are just my friend Greg's friends nice. brought their cars. So I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that people, I never expected that to be something people like gravitated toward, but it is for some reason. I think that's pretty cool. Where is uh, Grove Hill, by the way? Where did you guys film? So it's in a, it's several different towns in Ohio. You have Loveland. The main one was Blanchester and then Morrow. Grove Hill is actually the name of a restaurant that I took my fiance to after I proposed to her. So that's just a made up name as far as towns go. But yeah, like Jacob's house is in Morrow. The bulk of it is in Blanchester and they're all just sort of right next to each other. And then Loveland is where like Bramford's driving his cop car around. That's where Bramford's house in the movie. That's the house I grew up in. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's my, that's my dad's house. And so that's all Loveland. That's like, that town is why I essentially wanted to make something like candy corn. You know, when I saw Halloween for the first time, it was like, holy shit. I live in Haddonfield. (laughs) This is amazing, you know? The film, it's laden with practical effects. Why was this important to you? And was it something that you had to fight for with the budget? It was important to me because digital fucking sucks. Every every aspect, whether whether it's the medium or it is the effects. I hate it. It's a crutch. And it just doesn't look good. It's like you can't argue that vinyl in the proper listening environment sounds better than an MP3. There's a warmth to it. There's an integrity. And that's how practical effects are. Fortunately, I did not have to fight that because I had Justin Mabry. who's a fucking Swiss army knife. I mean, we didn't pay for effects. Justin did everything. I found out later, did everything. He told me like, yeah, I've got all this stuff in my shop. He fucking spent thousands of dollars out of his pocket that he didn't tell me about just to make it right. So like without giving anything away, but like there's body parts, like he made them out of silicone and like airbrushed the veins and stuff in them and made sure they moved like real body parts. Um, there is I I won't say who it is, but like there's a head in the movie. Yes. He sculpted that. We didn't have money for a life cast. So he sculpted it from a block of clay Whoa. based on a picture of that actor. Oh, shit. That's, that's awesome. He's that's fucking incredible. He's the real wow. deal. He's the, he's, the, and, he, and if you don't know who Justin is, he's the co-owner of Trick or Treat Studios. He sculpted everything. He sculpted the new Myers mask in Blumhouse's right. Halloween. He did stuff on the most recent Puppet Master, The Last Phantasm. And he really got out of movies. And he's just, he's a great actor, too. He plays uh, Conrad, Deputy Conrad. Oh, okay. Yeah. Horn. Yeah. Yep. And, and again, he just loved it. And he was like, man, let me make this shit for you. Like, give me some time to do this. And I didn't know he could do that. I was like, well, he made the mask. Obviously, he made Jacob's mask. I was like, well, that's kick ass. And then he starts bringing in all these body parts. And it's like, holy shit, we're really going to do this. There's very, very little CG blood. Some of it we had to add because like in certain locations, they wouldn't let us use blood. We just were not allowed. Okay period. So we had to add some there. And then we had Dave Hartman who directed The Last Phantasm and he actually does all of Rob Zombie's when you see all this shit on stage, all Mm -hmm. these cartoons, animations, Dave does all that stuff. So he's amazing. He came on board to, you know, to add that, the visual effects just ever so subtly. Yeah. I couldn't be happier with, with how the practical effects turned out. Oh yeah. Did you you keep any of the stuff? 
I have all of it archived. Oh, that's house. great. Every, the trick-or-treat bucket. And, the trick-or-treat yeah. bucket. Nice. And that's another thing Justin made from scratch. Really? It's beautiful. Yeah. That's cool. That, Jacob's mask, the head I just mentioned, arms, backbones, tongues, ears, everything. I have all the weapons. There's one weapon that went missing. I don't know where James put that one, but... You get to keep anything, Boogie? I, I'm not saying anything. <laughs> <laughs> How was your experience producing, man? This is the first film you produced. What was that like? It's awesome. I don't know. I'm still learning this whole producing thing. It's something like he said before. I've always wanted to get into film, and I'm not an actor. I don't know shit about camera work, so I'm like, oh, fuck it. I'll just... Here's my money. Let's make something cool. Right. <laughs> I don't want to do that with anybody, and I don't want to be a producer that comes in, and Josh could have had this movie funded years ago but like he said you know they they want to change shit they want to edit stuff and that's not really what i want to do nor do i know how to do that so i'm not going to bullshit with you and try to do that it's amazing to work with josh and hopefully we'll do a bunch in the future i believe in him and i believe in the other people matt and justin who are involved and so it's for the first movie for me to produce i don't think it could have gotten better than this it's super strong man. and it's yeah. so, and it's not even you know and it just is now coming out so we'll see what happens but so far so good and it's been you know i don't know how it could be any better yeah the but. film has got a great look to it it's got these three characters that there's a lot of mystery to. You have, the, you know, Dr. Death and you have uh, Wolf Boy and Bishop Gate, you know, and you have these characters where I'm like, you know what? I'd love to know more about them. Hopefully there's like a sequel somewhere, man. You know, at yeah, some I point, because I have two more scripts written. I have the idea of like, it could be a really cool mini series or they could be two feature films. I'll just say I have the full support of everyone you just mentioned that nice. wants to get back in, in the world of Grove Hill. But yeah, man, it was just such a, you know, I, I left subtleties and nuances and questions unanswered you know that's a page from hitchcock's book the audience doesn't always need to know everything it's great um, but at the same time that's all there i had always said from the beginning like it just sort of happened i just started writing and kept writing and kept writing and kept writing and then it was like well shit I've got, you know, 400 page script here. This isn't going to work. And uh, so we could just like, you know, take that and put that over there. And then, all right, well, here's the movie. And I definitely want to explore. And I, and I think we will, you know, now like you know, the embargo just ended on, on all the press and the reviews are just incredibly humbling. The reaction this film is getting is blowing my mind. So I'm already getting interest from labels that have seen it and have asked what I'm doing next. But I need to take a break from Grove Hill. I need to let I need to let those characters live and breathe and right. be with the fans for a while. And um, I would say I've got like ten scripts on my computer, and I'm ready to go play in another room for a little while with with some other characters. But all horror, I hope. Pretty much all horror, great, yeah. And great. and I have I have two that aren't horror, but they're dark enough to be whatever all this new horror, heightened horror, whatever yeah. the fuck they're elevated calling. horror, elevated yeah. horror. Yeah. <laughs> but I love horror, and I love the horror genre, and the horror community is being incredibly great to me right now. So I want to. Keep, keep yeah, what, what better time? I mean, you know, we need more original horror, more original ideas. And this is definitely one of those that just blew my mind. I'm like, man, what a great movie. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I mean, yeah, that. it's great time because, I mean, most things now are remake. There's not many original things out here. It was tough. I mean, we just had to have the right amount of people and having somebody like James, like, if I didn't have that, somebody just literally, you know, not to be funny, but like, just write a check and leave me the fuck alone. And here's why I did. That was another piece of advice from Rob was like, just don't fucking answer to anybody. Make the film you want to make and then show them. And if they like it, cool. Make sure they know you made it. And if they don't, fucking own up to it. And no one saw the movie before we screened it for the first time publicly. 
Courtney, the producers. The only people that saw it were Michael, the co-composer, and Lindsay, who color graded because they had to. But I was just, you know, they kept asking, like, we screened it live at Horror Hound. And, you know, Cincinnati, yeah. producers are freaking out. And they're like, can we see something? I'm like, nope, you can't. You'll see it with an audience. So they were scared to death. But that <laughs> cut is what Epic Pictures bought. And I didn't fucking change anything. Nice. I know this is random. Do you like candy corn? Because I know lots of people don't like candy corn. Like it's <laughs> the actual, like the actual candy. candy. Yeah, like we're talking every- about that today. Where I'm like, you know, candy corn. Candy has corn a candy. is amazing. Can you I like love, it? Yes. Yes. Wow. Do you not like it? Why no, does this not pure, surprise me? Pure sugar just overwhelms <laughs> me for some reason. I mean, reason. I don't like cotton candy and stuff. But then that's pure sugar. But that candy too. corn is amazing. You candy. love it. It really, it really is. <laughs> I don't know if I, I, it doesn't bother me. I don't love it, but I definitely don't hate it. Like some people really hate it. Jacob loves it. He does. <laughs> yeah. Sure does. He does. But how rad is that for a movie name? I mean, that's yeah. ne- perfect. It's never so been cool. made before. There's not another candy corn movie out there. Yeah. No, I, I, I don't think really so. Love I mean, I'm, it's, or candy corn. Or candy Con- corn. <laughs> Candy's corn, yes. But <laughs> thank you again yes, so much you. for joining thank us. This is seriously coming. awesome. Congratulations. Congratulations. Yeah, congratulations, guys. Thank you. You're killer. For thou who sleeps in stone and clay. Heed this call. Rise and obey. That was a Boo Crew Podcast, episode 67. Special thanks to our guests, Josh Hasty and Uncle Boogie. Follow Josh at Josh underscore Hasty on Instagram and Boogie at Local Boogeyman Productions and at Great White Grizzly on Instagram. If you're listening to this at the time of release, check out Candy Corn, available in theaters, VOD, and Blu-ray now. It's your Uncle Boogie saying, see you on the other side. We also have... Tiny totes for your tiny tots. And every tote, feel free to take a handful of candy. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is Tim Timebomb, Leone D'Antonio, Lauren and Trevor Shand, Austin Wilkin, and Rachel Tahada. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Bye! A Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network, home of the Boo Crew, for horror-centric interviews, SCP archives, weekly full cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and creepy, for disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.